Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, everybody, and the news stole my thunder on this blue light brigade. Um, if you haven't seen the video, I'm sure by the end of the day, anyone who has a phone will have seen it. It's obviously, it's, there's no context uh, to it but what you see. So whether there would be any excuse for this sort of behavior, I don't know. But there's a scene of four or five or maybe more policemen, I assume they are, um, who are beating up these two guys, one guy in particular, and they've got their cars are parked around it. And it's really, uh, I suppose, what in modern parlance they would call a um, tex- a moment of toxic masculinity. Um, I, I noticed in quickly looking at it that at least one of the number plates was absolutely clear, so tracking it down wouldn't be a problem. And the DA was out of the starting blocks on this one. They have referred already referred the matter to the independent uh, uh, police directorate to investigate and I think the reason this has a sort of political bent to it is very much the fact that I think very few of us view these blue light brigades with anything other than contempt we they behave on the roads the way they appeared to behave yesterday they drive fast, they they throw their weight around if you can do that in a car uh, and our Leaders seem to have enormous number of our leaders seem to have blue light brigades. Whatever lowly office they they occupy, um, Sir Ramaphosa has loads of cars in his blue light brigade. And if there's anything that that makes us feel like and get aggravated by being made to feel like the little people. It's the blue light brigade. We all have to move out of the way. We we watch these expensive cars speed past us, and by and large, assume that there is n- probably almost nothing to justify it. And uh, if, if such protection is required, then our leaders are in very, very big trouble. So I imagine this will be dealt with fi- quite quickly. Um, it has been proved that the men in on, on screen, shall I say, where our police are, belong to SAPS. So the question is... Were they doing it in the context of serving a, a politician or in a different context altogether? But uh, I doubt whatever the civilians may have done, I very much doubt we will have sympathy for the, poli- for the policemen in this regard. Um, you will have seen a fair amount last week about the extraordinary level of rioting in France as a result of the police shooting of this uh, teenager in Paris, which spread to the major towns in France, not necessarily the rural areas, and even spilt over into Switzerland and Belgium. And I think, you know, France is the country of of protests uh, of any kind, left, right and centre, but I think this mixes two things. It's One is um, the Macron government's apparent failure to pay attention to the the social problems and the people living in in these benighted areas. And on the other hand, the issue of immigration and culture clashes. And it's something that is huge, is a huge issue in the immigration debate in Europe, but in France in particular, because I think 10% of the French population 
um, is now Muslim. So very, very tough times ahead. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. I'm going to look at something a little different uh, today at this at this time. Because there are some very interesting court cases that came out of the United States Supreme Court last week. Now, apparently it's the end of the current term, so a whole lot of uh, judgments will have been, will have been released. And clearly the, the one that more than anything that everyone was watching was affirmative action planned in particularly in universities. And what the Supreme Court found was that it's unconstitutional to consider race in university admissions and thereby eliminating a tool that university principals have used to create diversity on their campuses. Now, the decision of the nine judges, six were were Republican appointees and three opposing were Democrat appointees. And the effect will be, obviously, of reworking the admissions criteria in higher education, and particularly as for decades the pursuit of diversity has been an article of faith. There, it is, it's an interesting, it does, it does touch a bit on us because essentially what the court says is that for too long, and this is Justice Roberts wrote, universities have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of, of an individual's identity is not challenges besetted skills built or lessons learnt, but the colour of their skin. And our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. And I would argue in South Africa, our increased affirmative action BE legislation is is going to find, be subjected to similar arguments. Um, He did allow that admissions officers could consider, and I quote, an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. Um, but the student must be treated based on his his or her experience as an individual and not on the basis of race. And I think that's important because, you know, you can, it's, 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 it's extremely difficult and I think ultimately unfair to make, to try and make up for people's past experience or people in their families or in the country's past experience as we do with apartheid on a sweeping basis without having regard to 30 years later what the circumstances that individuals experience now. And I I certainly do not believe that children who come from um, wealthy homes, good education, that sort of stability uh, and can afford to have their education paid for should be treated in the same way as poor uh, as poor previously disadvantaged people. In fact, we believe that, as the IRR, that disadvantaged people should include anyone who's disadvantaged, and it's based on, on the facts affecting their, their economic situation and, and their family situation, not, not on the color of their skin. And it was still, in any event, on the numbers, pro- achieve the result most people think it should. Um, on the other hand, the, Minority judgment says that society is not and has never been colorblind and uh, that the court was ignoring the dangerous consequences of an America where its leadership does not reflect a diversity of the people. Um, I'm, 
I would question that uh, that submission because these court cases came about largely because of discrimination against Asian Americans from elite universities because they are generally the top contenders for positions at universities. They work very hard. They have a family ethos. The parents put a great deal of pressure on them. In other words, they 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 earn their right to, to those positions. And the other thing, and I've seen black political commentators in America comment on it every now and again, is that one of one of the problems with affirmative action, particularly in these esteemed high-level colleges, is that they give admission to kids who will struggle in those very uh, rarefied atmospheres, but would probably do absolutely fine and get their degrees at a sort of a level down, which most of us, of course, would be happy to get to because very, very few people, relatively speaking, get into those sorts of, uh, those sorts of colleges. And to, I think to, to require a sort of demographic representation is disastrous for the, uh, for the growth of a society, and particularly society as, as dynamic and as inventive as, uh, as America's. So the, you have that, uh, that distinction, but uh, it'll be interesting to see to what extent, if if at all, university, uh, univer- uh, sorry, American universities change their criteria or massage them or find a different way of dealing with them so that nothing really changes. Um, but certainly, it w- it should make a considerable difference to Asian Americans. And if they are disproportionately larger, well. If they've got it on merit, they've got it on, on merit. And, and essentially that's really all that's to be said about it. Um, one of the other decisions taken was that the Supreme Court threw out the Biden administration's plan to forgive student loans debts held by 40 American, million Americans. And it has ended, ended a $430 billion program which the White House considered a crucial way to cement the president's support among younger Americans. And the feeling is that's the only reason they did it. It was a, it was a, a voting ploy or a encouragement, and which is strange because probably the majority of students who would be let off their loans would have voted for the Democrats anyway. And a lot of the outrage, and I think justifiably so about the uh, forgiveness of of such debt is that everyone else including the poor the middle class etc would be paying for those debts to be forgiven so the people who who take on high university debts would essentially be supported by the rest of the country and i know this is very very tough but one of the things you have to do is you have to grab your own agency and you have to decide whether you can afford to take on the debt that you choose to take on. Um, there's not to say that probably the whole issue of loans and, and funding of that nature needs to be reconsidered in the society, but it is the individual decision right or wrong. It is not for the country to relieve them of a, of a debt that they had a choice of taking up or not taking up. So, uh, you know, I think, I think actually most, most sort of middle of the road, which is the majority of people would, ex- would, would go with both, uh, with both decisions. And I think it was very, sim- there was a technical reason that everyone's debating as to whether the White House could pass such a, such a part of pe- a piece of legislation. Um, 
uh, and it would probably come down to this if if, uh, if they try and create new legislation. But I think it's cynical and unthinking. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Today I'm not going to have a guest. Um, uh, there's a subject I wanted to canvas because it, it canvases bad news and then it canvases good news. And I thought we could use a bit of that. And it's, it's, it's quite an interesting thing. We've spoken at length about the essentially, let's call it the sabotage of the South, of, the, of South Africans economy. Um, and criminal gangs are increasingly being part of that sabotage. Now the sabotage would r- run from anything from pulling out railway lines, copper cables, d- which derail trains. The, the government has let that fall to a considerable extent. And they say, those in the industry say that the effects on rail in particular of all the theft and the crime and the syndicates, um, has actually had a greater negative effect on drop in the GDP than has, um, ESCOM load shedding. So we're really talking, a hugely big problem because essentially even if we had the electricity or have the electricity, we can't get on with business. Now, the mining industry has enormous problems. Um, they range from the Zamazamas. They range from, from criminal gangs who try to shake down the mines, who want – and this happens in the construction industry as well – who want to take a cut of profits or earnings without doing anything just by, by virtue of being at the – at the end of a barrel of a gun, um, there's there's often unrest in the areas around the mines. There may be trade union uh, clashes and and factions, and there's unrest as a result. And then there's often just pure political the political assassinations in the areas, and they, they they are very very difficult areas to deal with as a as a mining company. Mining companies have to look after very much more than the business they are in. And in every respect, the mining income has dropped, construction is in, a ter- is in terrible shape. And what is happening is very often small or medium enterprise sort of business forums, as they are called, essentially become criminal syndicates and, uh, and, and, and people die and our economy just goes uh, down the toilet. But what... Business leadership sums it up as business leadership SA is that the that what's shocking is all these events are shocking in themselves, but what's really alarming is the silence from the authorities. Now I know in Cape Town I think there was a construction of RDP housing, a project that was halted. It has been halted because one of the employees on on the site was gunned down. Now, that sort of thing is happening all around the country. The police have been nowhere to be seen. Um, trucks are being stolen. I know in Richards, at Richards Bay coal terminals, interviewed about a year ago, um, a, an economics journalist who talked about how exactly this was happening at, in Richards Bay. The community was getting involved. Um, there were gangs getting involved. There were people being uh, assassinated, uh, including managers. And of course, you know, that, that is a, that essentially turns us into a criminal state and, and everything gradually stops happening. However, there seems to be a move that's, that augurs really pretty, that augurs pretty well. 
Now, Richards Bay Terminals, Richards Bay Minerals, rather, that um, has experienced some extraordinary crime in the last few years, uh, is saying that it is cracked down on mining syndicates and has slashed theft by more than 80%. Now, more than 80% is absolutely extraordinary if you if you think of how little is has been solved with the police services over the last few years in these areas. Um, they say that theft from trucks transporting product belonging to the conglomerate have declined by between 80 to 90 percent in over, just over the past four months. Now, what's extraordinary about that is obviously not only that it's being done and it's being successfully done, but it's being done quickly uh, in relative terms. Um, and it's, it's a, I don't want to say delight, but it is a delight to see corporations hitting back hard and showing that it can be done um, with a dramatic drop in the theft of trucks, uh, in the air case, transporting mainly chloride and titanium slag. Um, and what seems to have done is that the companies grabbed the nettle, got the police involved, got good policemen investigating, and things have changed incredibly. He said the um, one of the managers, uh, uh, Werner Duvenhacher, says that they recently lost one 30-ton truck. And teams could not understand how it had happened. Um, and they could see that they went from truckloads lost per evening to one truck being lost in four months being a big deal um, and a significant change. And it's, it's, I think it's incredibly exciting. And apparently what they managed to do is uh, managed to track the, the product and thereby tracked the stolen, the stolen truck. So obviously I think... What it points at is that probably has been the, the the government has been no sorry not the government the the private sector has been sort of holding tight trying to get the the police uh, the police uh, to get involved in and deal with these issues and either they haven't or they won't or they're involved or all of the or all of the three but with 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 good people involved amazing things can happen. Um, He says they have a task team with some excellent officers who do not hesitate to take the bull by the horns. Um, He does wish they could go quicker with prosecutions and orders of arrest, but, um, you know, they'll live with that for the time being. Sorry, for the time being. Um, Apparently, just to go back, uh, there's a point on the on the truck that went missing with the uh, titanium slag and, and et cetera, and the chlorine slag. They actually tracked the truck to a warehouse belonging to Costco Shipping in City Deep, Johannesburg. So that's, you know, a thousand kilometers of distance. Um, they were had an order to raid several premises, and they confiscated and preserved the samples which they would use in court. And one of the two of the thirteen trucks that had been confiscated off, afterwards were found to be carrying the stolen product. the The real challenge is that they've got to be able to get at and get to the kingpins kingpins of the syndicates that still need to be caught, and that applies in every mafia situation, including those big four mafia mafiosi 
environments that exist in Mpumalanga, in and around Mpumalanga and the um, energy stations. I mean, this is a, th- these are the things that Andre Dureta brought to the public attention, which they apparently are now investigating. And if the cynic in me wants to say, well, if our load shedding is down, it's because the politicians have managed to persuade the mafiosi to keep a low profile for a way. I am speculating, but it, I don't know. That, that sudden improvement in load shedding, I, I'm, not prepa- I'm not easily going to attribute that to efficiency and improve just efficiency and improvement of maintenance and repair etc needless to say in the particular case of Riches Bay uh, conglomerate Costco hasn't answered any uh, uh, any questions there seems to be that uh, that what organizations like this are doing is they're fighting back from a desire to keep doing business in South Africa um, and they have to create they have to create safe environments for their people and integrity for their businesses first and foremost um, I think what's probably important that's not being mentioned is that other than the fact that if they do business they are contributing to the fiscus hugely i mean it's made all the difference to us surviving the last few years but it also means that they are not going to be differential to the government anymore. They're not waiting for the government to come forward and and be of assistance or take over what should be their task for which we pay, pay taxes. And to highlight this, is uh, there was a lovely interview um, with the CEO of Sabanya Stillwater, Neil Fruinemann, the mine on crime and corruption in the Sunday Times of last week. And uh, they describe him, and, I th- and as one's seen from him, he's probably been the, one of the most outspoken um, businessmen for some time. And apparently he, together with Remgro CEO Yanni Durant, will lead a business government initiative against crime and corruption. And I think this came out of the discussions they had with with the uh, government a few weeks ago. Um, but they say... They'll set their own priorities, and if there are attempts to stonewall them, presumably interference by government, they'll go it alone. He says, we are very aware that certain elements may try to stonewall us, but we're designing our crime and corruption initiative so we can achieve 80% of our aims alone. So if they get the right cooperation as Richards Bay has done, Maybe they'll come closer to 100%. And there's a certain tragedy in having to have waited for this long for the business sector to have said, so far and no further, it doesn't matter what the government can do to us um, through regulation, through stymieing us, through court action. With what we're dealing with in in the way of crime, that's mattering less and less, I suspect, is, is, is the issue. The priority for the mines is to disrupt criminal supply chains, and business has the capacity to do that independently of the government, Furniman says. Um, Sectors such as consumer goods, banking, and minerals have their own crime intelligence operations, and combining them would create a formidable weapon against crime, he says. Apparently, and this was confirmed by everything we know about ESCOM, the private sector has been sending crime intelligence reports to the police, 
police. And Fruinman says, and nothing has happened. He says, using this intelligence itself will allow it to disrupt illicit supply chains on its own. We know who they are, and we will disrupt them. We will chop them off at their knees. And frankly, I think uh, that sort of fighting talk brings a little warmth to our hearts, shall we say. And one gets a sense from someone as as, as uh, talented as Neil Fruneman that if he says, he and his colleagues say they can do this, they can and they will uh, will, different, will will do so. He says, the crisis is such that the state has become so weak that business in every respect, not just crime and corruption, has no choice. And the problem is, uh, from a political point of view, is this is actually absolutely correct and confirms all our views about the private sector being the main driver of the economy and everything related to the economy. But at the same time, the ANC is doubling down on legislation that puts more of the economy in its hands, which hands have been proved to be corrupt and incompetent, and there is no hope that they will do anything that they plan to do new better than what they're doing currently. And it's it's the ultimate ideological conundrum because you cannot move in a direction that is pro- that is being detrimental to the society that is favoured as an ideological and an, a, a died in the world old ideological position versus operating in the in the modern world successfully and accepting the fact that however things may pan out politically, we are still very much a global world. Technology has allowed us to be those sorts of things. Um, the role of civil society, irrespective of what the government says, and business will be doing all it can to expand um, the growth, to expand the economy, to provide jobs, which the government cannot do in anything but little handfuls at best. And he says, and he's right, civil society needs to step up run municipalities, fix infrastructure, and it's hopeless waiting for government to do it. We can't sit back and allow this to continue. He says they have they have found many people in the president's office who support their participation, but there are elements in government, don't we know, who don't and will try to undermine them. Um, he says, and again he's reiterating our thoughts, a financially powered civil society will change that. We as a business are just the front end of doing what we're doing on behalf of civil society. We're going to involve and able civil society organizations, and he refers to such as outer organization, and doing tax abuse. Look, in many respects, given their, their extraordinary financial constraints generally, civil society organizations have, have worked very hard, and we have a very strong civil society in this country. It's it's organizations like Alta, like AfriForum, like Solidarity, like the IRR, like the Free Market Foundation. And that's just naming a few, the Center, um, uh, Center Prize, sorry, <laughs> I'll leave that one, you, you, you'll get the drift. But it's across the board, and it's, it's in every element, including, including the media and health, etc., and South Africans really are there in civil society, but they they have to fight for the money to do what they do. So theoretically, if the business sector really gets involved to the extent that it will, or it says it will, 
um, that, that that fight together will hopefully put such pressure on the government, maybe to the point where we'll have a complete change in government by this time next year. Um, he points out, and this is something that I've wondered about for a while, that there have been offers from business to support the National Prosecuting Authority with legal prosecutorial and data analysis experts, but they have been rejected. Now, I've heard people talk about conflict of interest, etc., but particularly if a good business is paying for them and is not involved in a particular act of arrest or prosecution or analysis, there is no reason why they can't provide assistance to the NPA with no conflict involved at all. Business leaders have been inter interestingly interacting with the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services, Ronald Lamola, who apparently is supportive of what they're doing. And Fruneman says there is a very different wind blowing at this point in time to what it was six months ago. The problem is th things have obviously got from very bad to so much worse in six months that this is happening because 26 years has not seen the sort of accommodation because of that ideological rigidity in socialism that is just a non-starter. In response to Cyril Ramaphosa's undertakings about there being a shared determination to overcome, etc., etc., he says, we are not swayed by talk, only by actions. We're saying to them, to him, we hear you, but actions speak louder than words. We're well aware of the pitfalls and what has happened in the past, but I believe there's a different wind blowing. There's an air of desperation from all of us as well as the government. Um, and he acknowledges that the, the, the companies are using this politically to suit themselves. Um, that they will, sorry, the government will use it to politically suit themselves, but they think that civil society voters will see right through it. Um, from the polls that he sent, he's, he's seen, and there are a number of polls which differ, what we're doing is not going to be interpreted as the government suddenly having been, done something for the people. Um, it'll be seen as weak, and the, the voters will vote to reflect that, essentially. He is aware that depending on what happens in the elections, there could be a backlash against the private sector um, involvement, but business cannot wait and see what various elements of government are doing. Um, he says, it's given the opportunity to make a difference, I would kick myself if I didn't try to make that difference and demonstrate that you can fix these things when civil society hangs together and business uses its ability, competence and leverage. I don't think we want to just watch it go all, all go down the drain, which is what will happen if we do nothing. He says he and Yanni Durand are both very competitive. We don't want to waste our time, and we're not going to waste our time. Now, if you've seen what Neil Froneman's done in dealing with the challenges at uh, at Sibanye, and you see the the uh, the physical imposing nature of the man, I'm prepared to put my, wa my weight behind his very considerable weight to support that he will, he and his colleagues will get something done. So let's see. It's, 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 uh, it's, you know, these are competent, competent people who care 
both for society and Nashim for their bottom line. So that's fine. It's whatever works for them will work for us. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. Let's go further afield, but on a slightly different tack, we're going to look at Putin and Prigozhin, uh, Vladimir Putin and Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, the subjects of that extraordinary action to Moscow last the other week, which Prigozhin essentially took, I think it was about 5,000 men, and marched to Moscow to complain about the Russian generals executing the war in the Ukraine. There seems to have been some sort of agreement reached between the two, and uh, which is very strange because normally I would imagine in most situations like a mutiny of this kind, the head would be taken and probably executed, and God knows what would happen to his his soldiers. Um, but it's, it, a resolution has been found. Prigozhin apparently is in Belarus, which I very much doubt. He's and they're trying to incorporate his people into into the army. But what's interesting is the Wall Street Journal has described Putin as having to manage what they call one of the most complex corporate takeovers in history of the Wagner Group. Um, and essentially he's, they're saying that this is the biggest corporate takeover since, in, since, since Britain took over the East India Company to control all its, uh, all its Colonies in the 19th century. So, uh, in the process, the Federal Security Services, the FSB, which is the successor of the KGB, have served, served search officers for evidence against Prigozhin, and Kremlin-backed backed military contractors are now launching recruiting drives on social media to attract some of Wagner's 30,000 mercenaries, hackers, and money men, which have been we de- have been deployed in the Ukraine, the Middle East, and in Africa, and that's sh- brought up some horrifying uh, scenes enacted by the Wagner Group. Um, now, law enforcement in Russia took computers and services at Prigozhin's Patriot Media Group (PMG), um, which once included the Internet Research Agency. Now, that is the social media organization that pumped millions of post-Kremlin messages onto social media during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. So that's where the Russiagate social media scandal came from. Prigozhin was on top of it. He's got companies in all sorts of areas, unsurprisingly. Now, apparently, I think you love this, the likely new owner of PNG is going to be the National Media Group, which is chaired by Alina Kabaeva, the Washington-sanctioned rhythm gymnast. The U.S. government believes she is the mother of at least three of Putin's children. Um, that's such a wonderful story. It's like, you know, that is so bizarrely sort of undemocratic. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. Well, she's going to take over this group, apparently. Many of the deals that Wagner-linked companies struck with African governments were informal reliance and s- on smuggling and illicit transfers, and they were negotiated pre- by Prigozhin himself. So you have that combination of them being oral agreements negotiated only by Prigozhin and sort of administered through a range of related companies, but not 
his direct big companies. Um, his empires also included finance, construction, supply, and logistics, mining, natural resources, and an organization or a business called Sport Horses Management run by his daughter. Um, the murkiness, just it's, it's tentacle-like. Uh, Everopolis is another mercenary form under the Prigozhin Empire that guards the largest gas fields in Syria and is estimated to receive up to a quarter of its production profits. In Mali, the, the government has paid Wagner companies more than $200 million since late 2021 to defend Mali from Islamist rebels. And in the Central African Republic, and these are all poor, poor countries, a Wagner-controlled company has taken control of productions at Ndasima gold mine, and its unexploited resources are estimated to be $1 billion. Um, now, the gold and diamonds that are mined are exported by another Prigozhin firm to markets in the United Emirates and onto Europe. Um, the Wagner Group has also been active in the Sudan, and I think it's been on behalf of the rebel grouping, which was the grouping associated with the genocide in, in Darfur. Um, I think 300,000 people were, were, were killed in that process. And it's to seen whether this, whether the Russia manages to take control of these entities and run them successfully as a legitimate government rather than these sort of higher soldiers for hire that Prigozhin has been using. And I suspect it, it, it will not, it will be problematic for Russia, A, because they cannot literally manage that sort of environment and B because it would do a lot of harm in the long run to their efforts to make nice in Africa and uh, improve their, their, their profile. But in this, this morning I read that Prigozhin apparently is starting to take back his empire. So um, I suppose the things with Prigozhin and Putin and Russia is that while Putin may have taken a long time to come out and say something about the mutiny against him, Prigozhin, whatever the agreement he's reached with Putin, um, acts quickly. Or maybe this was all part of the plan anyway. Who who would know? It's a, the stuff of a Russian crime novel. But just to give you a little bit of sense of, of the hot dog vendor that became the chief of Wagner Group, um, he, he spent time in prison, he sold hot dogs, he was ultimately became the chef for for Putin. And just to give you an idea of what sort of employer he was in that context, uh, Prigozhin employed line cooks and kitchen staff for, for things like sumptuous New Year's Eve and national holidays dinners. And when he did, every employee he employed had to first pass a polygraph test. The guests at these events ironically would include Vladimir Putin, the defense minister who, who, who he's at odds with, Sergei Shoigu, which is... Uh, Prigozhin is, is at odds with, Chief of General Staff Valery, Valery Gerasminov, and uh, it's one of his former waiters said that one of the questions I asked in this in this uh, test was, "Have you ever wanted to harm the President of the Russian Federation?" Um, Prigozhin used to serve, personally serve Putin's meals. Never spoke to him. Melted into the background obediently. Um, and paid his staff on the spot in cash from a large bag. 
He threatened to break the teeth of waiters who dropped forks or missed a cue and would summarily fire cooks for small infringements. Finally, and this is a beaut, at a Defender of the Fatherland Day event, he tasted a ladle of soup, which he was unimpressed by, approached the cook responsible and punched him repeatedly in the face. He was never seen again. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And just to give an indication further of the extent to which uh, business is is offered to help government, the Bus- Durban Business Group has said that the city cannot keep closing its beaches. It's, it's a disaster for tourism um, and just growth in general. And what is it that's ingesting is let them help. In other words, let the business group help, help the municipality and the province to keep the beaches open. Um, they've said correctly that the constant repeated closure of, be- of beaches has a negative per- effect on the perception of the city and that the ongoing sewerage crisis is affecting tourism. The problem, of course, is that not enough attention is being paid and the aged sewerage infrastructure remains aged uh, sewerage infrastructure it is not being repaired and obviously aggravated by the floods of uh, 2022 which since then has seen raw sewage pumped into Etiquini's rivers and oceans and leading to high levels of E. coli in the city's waters Um, Despite the Department of Economic Development, Tourism and Environmental Affairs, the city has just ignored it. And cases, criminal cases have been opened against them, and I'm sure civil cases as well. And what essentially the the businesses are proposing to do is to put in place public-private partnerships that would repair the infrastructure needed to stop this happening. Now, that sounds, uh, guys, of course that's what they need to be done. But usually, usually the problem has been um, has been a, ref- a failure, a refusal, or just ignoring business's role in getting to grips with that. And as, I'm, I imagine that if you get private business Involved and genuinely take them on board to assist this to change and to do something to the, to the tourism sector because Durban just is is in, a, is in an awful state. Um, you do these things already; you've got a huge improvement on everything, and, and and whatever other improvements need to be made will easily, pardon the pun, flow from from repair the repair of sewage and the cleaning up rivers and and ocean, and it's. You know, if you think about it, Durban and the surrounds are, is, is a town where South Africans, is more, probably more so than, than foreigners, but South Africans go to for holidays, for, for warm seas, for relaxed environment, for chilled sits on the beach or whatever it is one does in the, in the circumstances. So please, municipality, please just let them Get involved, let them lead it, let them do it, let it get done. So with that sort of qualified hope, uh, but it certainly, everything does look more hopeful on, on that score, 
Um, I'm going to love and leave you. I will be away for the next two weeks. Um, but in the mean, in that time, you can read the Daily Friend at dailyfriend.co.za. Our news pieces, such as some of them we've discussed, our opinions are in there, very different sets of views. And our podcast, The Daily Friend Show, um, can be heard at live at 1.30 uh, four days a week until Thursday. And thereafter, you can pick it up on YouTube, Spotify, any of those um, platforms. So I'm going to off to have a holiday and... Uh, See you on the latter side of July, heading down towards summer.